Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 3, for the reading of Holy Scripture. John, chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 1. And our sermon for this morning comes from verses 9 through 15. In verse 1, it says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, and that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the reading of God's word, let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we know that it is you who, by your Spirit, gives us eyes to see ears to hear and hearts to receive your word and your gospel. We pray that you would do that for us now. Shed light upon it. Make our hearts burn for it. And put our hands and feet into action because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you are visiting with us, um, it is our practice to preach through various books of the Bible. We've been in the Gospel of John for a little over a month now, I think it is. And uh, we find ourselves this morning in chapter 3. And as we do so, we are in the middle of a conversation between Nicodemus and our Lord Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus was a ruler, a teacher in Israel. He was of that group we know that is called the Pharisees. And Jesus has much to say about them and his earthly ministry. They were a self-righteous group. He told his own disciples, do as they say and not as they do. And last time we looked at this uh, text of Scripture, we found Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And so Jesus got right to the point and he told Nicodemus, even though that he was a teacher in Israel, even though that he had accomplished much, even though that he was a member of the Sanhedrin or the the Pharisees, um, that he needed to be born again. And so we looked at the necessity of, of the new birth, that thing we call regeneration, in order to enter the kingdom of God in heaven. 
And so we explored as to why that is. Why is it necessary? Why is Jesus saying this? Why do we have this in the Bible? And so we saw that it's necessary because of our natural exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. We come into this world born in sin, as David put it in Psalm 51.5. So we're not natural born members or citizens of the kingdom of God. Even though we're born to Christian parents, some of us, that doesn't mean automatically that we are members of the true Israel. That our citizenship is in heaven, as the Bible puts it. It means that there is something that must happen. And so it's because of our natural exclusion, our natural condition. And that is because of what sin does to us. It has this effect on us. Because we're guilty of sin, we're polluted by that guilt. We can't wash away our own sins. And uh, it has not only brought to us guilt, but, but that pollution. So we need to be washed. And so Jesus says you need to be born of the Spirit, of water and spirit. And so baptism, that external rite where there's actually H2O applied to us, doesn't wash away our sins. But that which is signified by baptism does. The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The washing of regeneration, as Titus 3.5 puts it. And so our national, our national, well, I guess we could say that. Our natural condition uh, is another reason as to why it is necessary for us to be born again. And then, of course, we saw that our natural inability to save ourselves is another reason. We are born in our uh, sins. And as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, we are born dead, spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. So we need new life. We need a radical change in our nature. And that's what the Spirit of Christ, God the Holy Spirit, does for those He desires to do for them. And so, as we see in our text then, Jesus now turns from the necessity of the new birth, that it is necessary to be born again in order to enter the kingdom. Now He turns from entrance into the kingdom to the message of, of that kingdom, the message of the kingdom of God. And as we read, Nicodemus, being a teacher in Israel, should have known this. In verse 9, he says, How can these things be? Indicating to Jesus he did not understand. In verse 10, Jesus rebukes him. He says, In, in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? And so, being a teacher, a, a, an expert in the Old Testament, Holy Scriptures, Bringing that to the people, he should have been aware of this foundational truth of the necessity of the new birth and regeneration. And so as we look at what Jesus says after that, as we consider the message of the kingdom this morning, there are basically three truths about this message of the kingdom I'd like for us to consider. So first of all, as we look at this text We need to understand that this message of the kingdom of God can only be known by divine revelation. When we talk about revelation, it's that which is revealed, that which is disclosed. And so this message that comes from the kingdom, that is about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it can only be known through divine revelation. Elsewhere, for instance, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I think it around six times, He refers to the gospel as the mystery of God. The mystery of the gospel, for instance, in Ephesians 1 and verse 9. And that doesn't mean that it's a thriller, that it's, you know, a a novel that we have to figure out who, who did it. What it means is we would not know it 
unless God had revealed it to us. That's what it means. We cannot know the gospel. So you can look at Psalm 19. You can look at Romans 1. Everybody, every person has this general knowledge of the existence of the one and true God through creation. But then the law of the Lord must come. The gospel of Christ must come. And that is revealed from heaven. And even that general knowledge, that connection from the creation to the existence of God also comes from heaven, by the way, as well. And so then if this is true, if what I'm saying is true, and if what Jesus says in a little bit is true, that we know the gospel of the kingdom only by divine revelation, why then does he rebuke Nicodemus? Why does he ask the question, do you not know these things in verse 10? I think that's a legitimate question. And and my personal belief is that Jesus is asking this question to stir Nicodemus's conscience, to make him think. And so I believe Jesus at this point is drawing Nicodemus to himself. As we'll read later in John's gospel, we find Nicodemus uh, defending Jesus. And it's Nicodemus we find tending to Christ's body after his death. And so I like to think that Nicodemus is, in, is now in the kingdom. But at any rate, Jesus is asking this question to get him to think. Parents, you know what that's like. Teachers, you know what that's like. And so in verse 11, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And so now we can see in the ministry of Christ that there's this dividing line forming. This antithesis between those who know and believe the message of the kingdom, the gospel of Christ, and those who will not receive it. Why do I say that? If you look back at verse 2, this man, Nicodemus, he came to Jesus by night and said to Jesus, Rabbi, that is teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So remember, Nicodemus was sent to Jesus, or at least he is representing those who possibly sent him, the Pharisees. We, the teachers in Israel, we know that you're from God. So Nicodemus had this expectation of Jesus. And so Jesus says, we know. Now, to whom does he refer when he says we? Obviously himself. Uh, Perhaps his disciples. Um, but also it could be that he's referring to the Old Testament prophets and the writers of the Old Testament, those with him who, who knew these things. But also I think immediately he means John the Baptist because in chapter 1, this is what it says in verse 7 of John's Gospel. This man came for a witness, John the Baptist. He came for a witness to bear witness, that is to testify of the light, that's Jesus, that all through him might believe. And down to verse 31, it says, and I have seen, this is John speaking, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And so perhaps Jesus is talking not only about himself, but John the Baptist and the message that they preached, the message of the gospel of the kingdom and those who are with him and those who give credibility to him. The Old Testament prophets. And so Jesus says, we know. 
And when he says, when we know what we have seen, he is speaking with certainty, with divine authority, as we'll see. You know, sometimes when we think of seeing, we think of actually um, seeing something. Uh, That's not a proper definition, but um, we observe something with our eyeballs. And our brain interprets what we see and so forth. But also mentally we can see, we can understand, right? Oh, I see, I get it now. And uh, Jesus is basically, I think, saying we understand what we are talking about when it comes to this. And of course, all things when it comes to Jesus. And so in verse 12, it says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe? If I tell you heavenly things. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the things on the earth versus the things in heaven. Now, already he's been talking about the new birth. That's really the starting point of a person becoming a Christian, a follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a true disciple. And so this really falls in the category of a fundamental thing. He's been talking about wind and the air and that sort of thing. As an illustration of the work of the Spirit. And so when he's talking about earthly things, I think even regeneration, the new birth, he's talking about the fundamental um, and elemental truths of the message of the kingdom and the gospel. Remember in Hebrews 5.12, the writer there, he's basically saying, look, I wanted to talk to you about all these glorious truths, these higher things. But I'm having to speak to you as babes. I'm giving you milk. That's Hebrews 5 and verse 12. You should be teachers, but you're babes in your knowledge and understanding. Which if you're like me and you study Hebrews, you're like, really? Because that seems, that seems very heavenly, very weighty material. Things hard to understand. And so as we think about this, the heavenly things are really um, that which he will reveal in just a moment. And we'll cover that Lord willing next time. The weeks ahead, the last portion of this chapter. That would be the greater, higher, heavenly things. And when Jesus says this, he goes back again to verse 2, where Nicodemus is coming to him. And I think Nicodemus came with the expectation of receiving these teachings of Jesus. Because when someone in Israel performed such miraculous signs, as did Jesus turning water into wine. It was expected that he was a prophet unless he falsely prophesied. It was expected that he was sent from God. And so Nicodemus comes out of the the darkness, in the darkness as it were, and uh, to the light of Christ himself, expecting some great teaching. And so what Jesus says here informs us that Nicodemus and even we ourselves cannot comprehend the elemental and fundamental truths of the gospel unless it is revealed to us. And if we cannot understand those fundamental truths, we can't understand really the greater truths of God's revelation. And so what's the point? The point is what Jesus has been saying. You must be born again. You must receive the new birth. You must receive new eyes. 
to see, new ears to hear, and a new heart to receive these things. And so this is really devastating to a Pharisee. A Pharisee who was self-righteous, a Pharisee who relied and rested upon his own achievements and accomplishments, his own office, his own study of Scripture, even though it was erroneous at times, if not most of the time. This was crushing to Nicodemus' pride because he's helpless without God acting upon him. And we feel that. Hopefully you felt that last week as we talked about the necessity of the new birth. Years ago, a uh, professor of theology at uh, Princeton University, B.B. Warfield, he wrote a book on the plan of salvation. And in that work, he talks about two categories among those who call themselves Christians. There are naturalists and supernaturalists. And he says, in the naturalistic scheme of salvation, which is not good, which is called Pelagianism proper, named after Pelagius, who lived in the 300s, who's a heretic, naturalistic theology, he said, in its purity, quote, affirms that all the power exerted in saving man is native to himself. So that's the naturalistic view of salvation, that man generates himself. You know, you can read a book on how to be born again, that when he puts his faith in Christ, then he becomes born again and so forth, perhaps. And he contrasts that with the biblical view, the supernaturalist view, which asserts and teaches, quote, that all the power that is exerted in saving the soul is from God. If you've explored Christian teaching and doctrine and theology, perhaps you've come into contact with a few words, monergism and synergism. Even in the corporate world, I remember years ago, synergism was the thing. Corporations working together and all of this. That's what it means to work together. And monergism means work by one. Mono and um, Energy, basically. And so it means that our salvation is monergistic. It's the work of one. It's all of God. That is the biblical teaching. And this includes uh, even the message itself. It must come from God. And so we have verse 13. Jesus here takes it up a level. He says in verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he came down from heaven. That is the son of man who is in heaven. You might have a different translation. It might not have that phrase who is in heaven. And it's one of those textual variants. It's in many of the manuscripts. It's not in some of the others. And uh, that's a topic for another day. But I would not let that discourage you or frighten you. Because the textual credibility of the New Testament is greater than even the works of Plato. We have more copies of God's word in the original language than Plato himself. So if you doubt this, doubt the work of Plato. That's my point. But anyway, there's a textual variant there. But let's get back to the point. And uh, it is Jesus and his words here. He talks about, I think, his incarnation and his ascension. Incarnation in flesh. When Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, the triune God comes down 
And somehow miraculously by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary takes upon human flesh. It's talking about that coming down from heaven and living among us as we see in the Gospels. But also his ascension, which as we know happened after his resurrection, where with that same body that grew in stature, he ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand. And so if you look there again in verse uh, 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man. That phrase, the son of man, Jesus loves it. He refers to himself as that because that's who he is. That points all the way back to the Old Testament, even Daniel chapter seven, where the son of man ascends after his crucifixion is taken up into heaven before the ancient of days. And he receives all authority, all might, all power so that every tongue, tribe and nation worships him. So he's talking about himself in divine terms as the mediator, the God, man, the Messiah, the son of man. And so what he does is he talks about these things in order to show Nicodemus. That Nicodemus, do you know who you're talking to? I am the son of man. I was the one existed before I was in my mother's womb. In fact, I was in heaven With God, I am God. And this whole plan and this message of salvation was talked about before I came down. We'll find that in John 17, right? Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer to his father about the glory which he had before he came down. And the work that he came down to do, the work of the father, that's to accomplish the redemption of his people. It's as if... Jesus is saying, you're talking to, he is saying this, you're talking to the one who has come down from heaven. You're talking to the son of man in person. And you don't understand these truths. And these truths were even revealed in some way in the Old Testament. I mean, right, Jesus is the logos of John chapter one. In the beginning was the logos, the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And in Chapter 1 and verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. So here's Christ, the incarnate Word, talking to Nicodemus, telling him who he is, and saying, you don't know these things, but you should. So the kingdom of God is a divine message. It is revealed And then we'll take up these last two things about the message uh, rather quickly here. In verse 14, we ought to see that this message of the kingdom is the great theme of the Bible. It is the great theme and topic of Holy Scripture, even in the Old Testament. And so in verse 14, Jesus talks about Moses and the serpent and the wilderness. That's Numbers 21. So hold your finger there in John and turn back to Numbers chapter 21. Remember the context of God's people at this point. They have been liberated. They've seen the Lord's great and mighty right hand work and lead them and save them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Moses was leading them. And they had gone through the wilderness. And so they're in the wilderness. They're walking around and 
they begin to complain. In fact, in Numbers 21, in verse 4, it says the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. They became literally very impatient. Verse 5 says the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you, that is Moses, brought us up? Perhaps they're talking to God through him. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, there's no water, and our soul detests this worthless bread. Wow. You know what the bread is. It's the manna from heaven. And who does the manna represent? Jesus Christ. So the Lord sent, verse 6, fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. That's what whining and complaining can get you. Some of us are complainers by nature. Many of us, if not all of us, I would venture to say all of us. And how many times have we grumbled and complained at God and his providence and his ministers? Look, we aren't perfect. Sometimes we deserve it. But here Moses did not. And so God sends out the fiery serpents. Well, the ones who lived among them were told, verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray, intercede for us, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prays for the people in verse 7 and verse 8. We have that solution. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it. On a pole, just one, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses did it. He put it on a pole. We're told if a serpent had bitten anyone and looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And so Jesus points to this passage in John 3, pointing Nicodemus to Numbers 21. He says, you should have known these things. You remember that incident in the wilderness? Numbers 21, the, the fiery serpents? That's about me. If you look there in John chapter 3, Jesus says, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This must happen. This is part of the plan. And there's a comparison here. Even so, just as we were to connect the dots between what that serpent on the pole did and what Christ himself had come to do. Now in John 3, 14, Jesus says the son of man must be lifted up. What does that mean? It's interesting because when you read commentators, a lot of the reformers or at least one, John Calvin have noted uh, that this means really the preaching of the gospel as Christ is exalted because that word lifted up can mean exalted. And so Christ is exalted through the preaching of the gospel. And so as Christ is exalted in that way, those who believe on him will be saved. But a little later in John's gospel in chapter 12, verse 31, I think it is, 32, it says... This is Jesus speaking. And if 
I, or and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. The, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. You might think he's talking about the resurrection there, but John tells us he gets commentary. Jesus is talking about his manner of death. He's going to be lifted up from the earth. He's talking about his death. So I think Jesus here is talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about being lifted up on the cross, just as the serpent in Numbers 21 was lifted up on a pole. So what are we to understand Jesus to mean here from this comparison? Well, death is the punishment, the sentence for being guilty of sin. That's in there, obviously. And it is God only who provides the remedy for that sin. And that remedy comes only through one. And only those who look to that remedy will be saved. That's pretty clear. And so we need to understand that we have been bitten by the evil one, that old serpent, the devil. That as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we come into this world under sin. And we have received the poison and ass of sin. We need to be healed. And Jesus is getting then to the heart of the matter, and that is his crucifixion. Those who look to the crucified one will be healed by him. This is the heart of the message of the kingdom. This is the heart of the gospel, is it not? Jesus will go on to this later, and we'll hopefully see that soon. But the cross of Christ ought to be central to the gospel of Christ. Without the cross, we have no gospel. One of the writers of the last century commented on the liberalism of the early portion of the last century. Uh, Robert Niebuhr said this about those liberal writers. He said they brought a God without wrath, or rather a God without wrath, brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a cross or a Christ without a cross. I'm going to read it again. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. The cross of Jesus Christ was the very central Theme, the heart of the Apostle Paul's preaching, was it not? First Corinthians 2, the first two verses, he says, I didn't come to you with excellence of speech. I didn't come to you with the wisdom of men, even like that of the Greeks. He said, no, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Galatians 3, 1, he's talking to the self-righteous there, those who are tempted to follow the ways of the Judaizers and the doctors of the Pharisees. And he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Of course, in Galatians 6, 14, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in what? The cross. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world.
May the cross of Christ never leave our eyes gaze. Then the last thing we see here concerning the message of the kingdom is that it must be received by faith. We've already seen this in John. In verse 15, it says that. In the original, that's called a henna clause. It tells us that there is a result coming. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? With the result that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Healing. Eternal healing. And He says that whoever believes in Him, whoever has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever turns from his own works, his own way of doing things, and seeks the grace of God found and deposited in only the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him, he will receive eternal life. What a glorious promise that is. Nicodemus, you can't save yourself. Look unto me. Now, as we, we talk about this, it does. there's that word there, 15, in verse 15, that whoever, um, whosoever is the old translation. And someone might say to you, to me, but you go to a Presbyterian church, you don't believe in whosoever will. Or whoever will. Um, you believe in election and predestination. After all, you tell me that regeneration, being born again, is rooted in election, which happened before the world began. And God's predestined you to that. And me too, if I'm a Christian. How can you believe in whosoever will? What does Jesus say? Uh, he says that whoever believes in Him should not perish. I mean, we believe the Bible here, don't we? That's what it says. Of course, we understand. Here's the difference. We understand that the only one who will believe is the one who has previously been born again. And that's the sovereign work of the Spirit. And so as uh, Warren Wiersbe put it years ago, Jesus is talking about something here. He says the difference between perishing and living and between condemnation and salvation is faith in Christ. And so as we look at this this morning, let me just provide for you uh, four points of application. First of all, as we look at John chapter 3 and what we've seen so far, regeneration must always precede or come before saving faith. Being born again, experiencing the new birth must always come before saving faith. This is talking about in theology the order of salvation, the ordo salutis. And salvation really comes, our conversion comes as a package from God. Uh, but when you try to determine how these things happen logically, it, it is only logical that regeneration comes before faith. What have we seen? What is our natural estate when we come into this world? We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Do dead men believe? Nope. And so we have to understand that. Jesus said in John 6, no man comes unto the Father, or no man comes unto me, unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And in Romans 8, there's that golden chain of salvation. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 29, 
Paul says, for whom he foreknew, that goes back to election before the foundation of the world. He also predestined, he predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Those whom he called, these he also justified. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there's a good starting point for the order of salvation. And we see there that it is rooted in God's sovereign choice, the election of certain individuals before the foundation of the world. Remember in Matthew 22, Jesus gives the great parable of the, the wedding feast. He sends some out to go and call them in. Some come in, some don't. Some come in who are not guests. And at the end, he says, many are called, few are chosen. Matthew 22, verse 14. And so he's teaching us there, our Lord Jesus, is that many are called externally through the preaching of the gospel, but few are chosen. The ones who are chosen then are the ones who come and respond in saving faith to the gospel. Second, we see here that a person is, is saved not by works, but by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just ask you today, if we're not saved by works, and we're not, we're saved only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Upon what or upon whom are you resting? Are you resting in the Savior himself? Or are you resting in your own accomplishments, your own so-called good works? Or maybe you don't care. Maybe people don't care. We just try to escape the reality of what lies ahead after our death. You know, judgment, hell forever if we do not come to saving faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must flee to Him and call upon Him. Third point is really in a warning, as you've seen working through this passage. That is, we must have a prayerful, careful, Christ-centered approach to Holy Scripture, to the Bible. We need to read it prayerfully. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. It's the spirit who illumines our our understanding. We need to be careful in studying it, seeing it in its context, of course, but also having a Christ-centered focus in our reading and teaching and preaching of Holy Scripture. Now, I don't think that that means that every single detail in the Old Testament has some signification of Jesus, although it all is all about him. For instance, Parts of the temple do speak to him. Maybe the tent pegs do not. Um, A classic example of missing this is David and Goliath. You know, um, there's God's people at war with the Philistines. They cannot defeat Goliath the giant. And so here appears David out of nowhere. He tries on Saul's armor. It's too big. It's not going to work. He can't hardly lift the sword. And so David uses his own tool, his own sling and a stone to kill the giant. And he cuts off the head of the giant. So we look at that and perhaps you've heard a sermon on it where it's like, so here's how it applies to you. If you have faith in God, you can accomplish anything. You can slay your giants, whatever that might be. Maybe it's a disease you have. Maybe you're looking for a job. Maybe it's a relationship, whatever. But the point is that God's people can't save themselves. That there appears one that seems out of nowhere. He's been prepared for this. And he doesn't use the weapons of war that the world uses. No, he uses his own weapons. And defeats and slays the enemy. 
our enemy, Satan, our own sin and guilt. And so it's through David's son, the Lord Jesus, that our salvation would come. But that shouldn't make us slip into antinomianism. What does that mean? Being against God's law, saying, okay, we, we rest in Christ and um, we don't have to do anything. And I mentioned that because while it is true, and I firmly believe this, I hope you get that, that we're to keep our eyes gazed on Jesus and his gospel. Uh, we mustn't forget as well that Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, there's been this popular saying and teaching for the past decade or so in the evangelical world that you need to preach the gospel to yourself daily. And in general, I, I agree with that. If you read the Bible correctly, you're going to see Christ in it at some point. But let us not slide into just using that as a license to sin. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking, I'm often like, like Jeb, I'm a mess. And I need Christ every day. And that's true. I don't have it all together. Christ has to put me back together every day. But at the same time, I'm to follow him. I'm to increase in godliness, to pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And yet we are to see Christ in the Old Testament, if not we miss the boat. So there's this continuity between the Old Testament and the New. Not two different messages, not two different people, ultimately. And then last, I want to ask us a question here at Providence. Are we lifting up the Son of Man? Earlier, I mentioned Calvin's take on that phrase, lifting up. I don't see why it has to be both. He said, we lift up the Son of Man through the preaching of the gospel. I've said Jesus here is referring to his crucifixion. If we preach the gospel, we're going to be preaching the cross. As Paul puts it in Romans 10, how will they hear unless they hear a preacher. And are we taking the gospel outside of these walls? Taking the message to the unbeliever? You know, we have to have eyes to see opportunities. Sometimes we see them, we don't take them, and we repent for it later. Um, or sometimes we don't see them. This week I had a lunch appointment. I had a really cool waiter. A guy that I thought I could really, like, I could talk to him. You know? And his name was Andrew. And me and my guest, uh, we, we had a, a good lunch and we were very Christianly in the way we said, thank you, everything's great, we try to be nice. But he didn't know we were Christians, as far as I know. And I walked away and a little later I thought I missed an opportunity. His name is Andrew. 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 I should have asked, are you a disciple? Andrew? Huh? What? You know, one of the 12 disciples. Of course you're not. And then led into that, into a conversation. At least give him a church card and hope that he you know, is one of God's. He, he could have said, well, yeah, I'm a disciple. I've been a Christian for 20 years. In fact, I'm studying to go to seminary. I mean, he could have said that and that would have been great. But you see my point. And so then, beloved, as we see this, the message of the kingdom it only comes by divine revelation. It is the great theme of the Bible. 
And it must be received by faith. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would apply this word to our hearts. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your patience with us. Lord, sometimes we're thick-headed. We're slow to learn and to believe. We pray, Lord, even so, that you'd use us, that you'd grow us in our faith and obedience. And may you glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' name, amen.